The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 100, a psalm of thanksgiving. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. All right, we're in Numbers 11 today. It's Numbers 11, 1 through 15, and this is called Moses' Heavy Burden. All right. Numbers 11, verse 1. Now, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it. And his anger was aroused. So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. So he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now the manna was like coriander seed, and its color like the color of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar, cooked it in pans and made cakes of it, and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it, then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant, and why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them, that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all these people alone, because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. I knew that I was in trouble at 8.45 on Monday, 15 October. I did my morning devotional work in the book of Hebrews and got that posted. And then around 5.15 to 5.30, I started typing this sermon. I left for about 45 minutes to clean them all and 7-Eleven and then came back home. By 8.45, I thought that I had finally finished the first verse. That was about two or two and a half hours of typing. Once I got into verse two, I realized that verse one was incomplete. If I was to get 15 verses done at that pace, it would be well into Tuesday morning without any more breaks before I got them finished. Fortunately, not all were as complicated as verse 1, but it seemed like it was more than I could bear. Now, imagine Moses. He didn't just have his duties as the leader of the people who were all in one accord. Rather, as the account today shows, they were not only not in one accord, they were all over the place, just like my eyes are with these glasses. So give me a second here. I can't see with these. I don't know why I keep doing this, but people were inciting the multitude into rebellion, and there was literally nothing that Moses could do to appease them over what had them riled up. If you've ever supervised a group of people, you know how difficult it can be. Every person is an individual who possesses his own biases, pet peeves, neuroses, desires, hopes, faults, failings, and shortcomings. Toss that in with 10 or 20 of the same, and it is a recipe for difficulty. Now imagine what Moses had to deal with. Our text verse comes from Numbers chapter 11, it's verse 23. And the Lord said to Moses, has the Lord's arm been shortened? Now you shall see whether what I say will happen to you or not. 
Our text first comes from the same chapter in which we are looking at, but it's not cheating. Rather, we won't get to that verse until next week. Actually, it's going to be two weeks because we have a Christmas sermon next week. However, it is a good reminder to us as we begin these almost mournful verses today. Moses has one victory with the Lord, which is followed by quite possibly the lowest spot of his entire life. He will be found wanting elsewhere and will be punished for that. But it is probably a more difficult thing to deal with his shortcomings here than it is with his failings later. His obvious care, both for the people and for the glory of the Lord's name, is a point which will weigh heavily on him. His inability to correct the situation will bring him almost to ruin. If you're facing, or if you face, any situation which seems to be absolutely overwhelming, this passage is a great place to come in order to see that you are not alone. It is also a great place to come to know that the Lord has it all figured out in advance. All we have to do is remain faithful and place the really complicated stuff in His capable hands. He will tend to it because He cares for you. This is a marvelous lesson we can learn from His superior word. And so, let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through His word today, and may His glorious name ever be praised. I've got three separate thoughts for you today. The first is Taborah. It's verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. This seems like a simple set of words to open up the chapter, but it is actually hard to be dogmatic about what is being said. The Hebrew reads, Vehi ha'am kemito nemin ra be'azne Yehovah. And it happened, the people complaining's evil in ears Yehovah. The Hebrew can say either is the New King James Version, now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. Or it can say, now when the people complained of their hardship in the hearing of the Lord. Or it can say, and it happened, the people sinfully complained in the ears of the Lord. Or it can even be, and it happened that the people were evil complainers in the ears of the Lord. The word ra, or evil, can be attributed to the bad things which happen to the people, causing them to complain. It can be ascribed to the evil attitude of the people. It can be that the people were evil because of their complaints, or it can be attributed to how it is negatively received by the Lord. Sergio, I called him up in Israel and I asked him, what do you think about it? He looked at it and he ascribed the evil to the people. He said, and it happened that the people were as evil complainers before the Lord. Young's literal translation may give the most precise rendering. He says, and the people is evil as though sighing habitually in the ears of Jehovah. First, the word when, which is in the New King James Version, is not in the Hebrew. Next, the verb complain is plural. It says complainings. Third, it says in the ears of Jehovah. It is as if a constant whining from an evil people is coming into his ears, deafening out anything else. Adding to this is a new, extremely rare word, which is translated as complain, anon. It signifies to complain or murmur. When Sergio saw that, he was completely befuddled because it's such a rare word. It is used only here and in Lamentations 3, verse 39, and nowhere else. Here's what it says in Lamentations. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should a living man complain, a man, for the punishment of his sins? Like in Lamentations, the Lord determines the path and the outcome, and yet there is complaint against what he has determined. We don't need to be told why the people complained. We're simply told that they did, and that their attitude is evil, and that they did so. If for no other reason, the context of the passage's placement shows this. The people had been brought out of Egypt, they were brought to Sinai, and the Lord made a covenant with them. They have been taken care of for over a year as the tabernacle was being built, they have received a priesthood, they have been given the Lord's laws, and they have been divided up into their individual armies. After these many wonders had been brought about, the very last thing recorded was the departure of the people on their way to Sinai, as they are led by the pillar of cloud. Nothing has been recorded concerning any hardships. They're still receiving manna, and they're simply on the march to the land of promise. And yet the very first thing which is recorded after their departure is that the people have sighed habitually in the ears of the Lord. 
Let me read that to you. I'm going to take you there very quickly and show you what I'm talking about. This is Numbers chapter 10, the very last thing that we read. I'll start in verse 33. So they departed from the mountain of the Lord on a journey of three days, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them for three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was above them by day when they went out from the camp. So it was whenever the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the many thousands of Israel. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. He's taking complete care of them. He's there with them. He's got his presence with them. And they moan. Literally, in the turning of a page, it is the very first recorded thing to happen. They are found to be evil complainers. It becomes more certain that this is the people's complaints, which are being described as evil with the next words. Verse 1 continues, for the Lord heard it. Ve'yishma Yehovah, and heard Yehovah. There is no for in the words as if it is explaining something. It only says that the complainings of the people were evil in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord heard it. All we need to do is think of the disobedient child in the grocery store. Everything he needs or wants has been or will be provided, and yet the little whiner just keeps on whining. He had breakfast. He's assured of food in the hours ahead. He's a great home awaiting him. He will be taken there when the trip to the store is over. He has mom to care for him, and so on. There's literally nothing else that could be given him to satisfy him any more than he is right now at this moment, and yet he whines through the entire time that they are there. He whines through the entire trip back, and he whines about everything that happens in the process. Mom may be able to block this out, but dad just happens to be out with them today, and he is hearing what he cannot believe. Verse 1 continues, and his anger was aroused. Ve'yichar up and burned his nostrils. It is as if fire shot out of his nose over the whining that is going on. Oh, it's too rocky. Oh, me, it's so hot out here. Wah, all this dust. The whining was unending as if dealing with spoiled Democrats. And the father simply fumed at their attitude. Verse 1 continues. So the fire of the Lord burned among them. Vetivar bam esh Yehovah. And burned among them the fire of Yehovah. We are not told what the fire of the Lord is. In fact, John Lang says the punishment is as obscurely expressed as is the charge of fault. In other words, just as obscure as the first few words of the verse were, so is the vagueness of this punishment which is levied upon the camp. We can only speculate what it means. The same idea, however, is found in two kings and in Job. In Job, it may refer to lightning. No matter what it is, it is a directed fire which is destructive and it is described directly to the Lord. Verse 1 continues, and consumes some in the outskirts of the camp. The word akal means to eat, and thus it seems likely that the people were actually consumed. Rather than just tents, it seems to be saying that there is a loss of life. And the fire is directed to the katse, or extremities of the camp. A few things must be considered here. The first is that of the severity of the judgment which came upon them. Time and time again, during the Exodus and on the way to Sinai, the people murmured against the Lord and against Moses. And yet, there was not an outburst of this sort from the Lord. However, now the fire of the Lord has gone out and destroyed them. This is similar to what occurred with Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, and uses the same general terminology. The law has now been given. And in the giving of the law, there is the imputation of sin and then expected judgment. In Hebrews, it says this, For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, the word spoken through angels means the giving of the law of Moses, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The word of law was spoken, and now every trespass and disobedience will receive its just reward. The people can no longer expect the same treatment that they had received before they agreed to the terms of the law. This is reflected again in Hebrews, where the author there must have been thinking of this very account in Numbers. Here's what it says in Hebrews 10. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. 
And again in Hebrews 12, after telling the people, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. He goes on to say, for our God is a consuming fire. The people of Israel learned this for the first of many times in their history. And it is just a moment after their departure from Sinai. The second point about these words begs the question, why the outskirts of the camp? Some people say it's because that's where the mixed multitude was, as if Israel was pious and noble, and that it was the mixed multitude who were the ones who were complaining. There is absolutely nothing to substantiate this in either regard. And all through Israel's history, we see that they are the ones that are the whiners and the moaners. Others have their own explanations concerning it. But the answer falls in the fact that the camp is marching in a military procession. When an enemy attacks an army, he starts at the outskirts and he works his way in. By attacking there, the people will move together. They will cluster together. What is obvious here is that the fire coming upon the outskirts then bears a twofold significance. First, the Lord is acting as an enemy would, working, as the author of Hebrews says, in fiery indignation. However, he is also working as a leader of the people he has redeemed, urging them to cluster more closely around him. In this, it is as if he is saying, close to me is safety, but as you depart further from me, there is danger. The events of this account are recorded for us by Paul in 1 Corinthians in order to teach us the lessons of the past. Here's what he says. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. And here's where it says, Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The complaining of the people is a sign of distrust in the provision of the Lord. It is an offense to him, and it demonstrates a lack of faith in his goodness towards those whom he has redeemed. As Paul uses the wilderness account as typology for us, let us take the lesson to heart and not provoke the Lord through our distrust of his goodness. He has made his promises, and we shall benefit from each and every one of them in due time. What happens in the interim is simply life. It is what we are expected to endure, be it rocky, hot, dusty, or otherwise. But even in our times of forgetfulness and complaining, there is mercy to be found. Verse 2, then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched. We're just now getting to verse 2. Maybe you can see why that particular Monday sermon typing was so difficult. It's remarkable that the people cry out to Moses. There's a definite understanding that they must go through a mediator. And in this, they find Moses, not Aaron, as the appropriate one to mediate. Though the law has been instituted, and though Aaron is designated to mediate, they still defer to Moses. Moses is loved, and he is trusted by the people. And they know that he is loved and trusted by the Lord. Aaron is the one to handle the technical aspects of the law, such as sacrifices. However, Moses is the one who speaks to God, and he is the one through whom the law came. He is thus fulfilling the type of Christ to come in this regard. It is Jesus who speaks directly to the Father, and it is he through whom the new covenant has come. Jesus will also handle all of the technical aspects of the priestly duty set before him, but in this case, it is Moses who more accurately reflects Christ for us in our time of need. In this verse is another new word in scripture, shaka, which means to sink down. It's rather rare being seen just six times. The fire which came was from the Lord, and the quenching or the sinking down of it is also from him. At the petition of Moses, the Lord responds accordingly. Verse 3, so he called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. The name Taborah means burning. It comes from the word ba'ar or burn, which was used in verse 1 and then used here again in this verse. At times, the word is used in regards to purging evil from among the people. 
That's its intent here. It is a lesson that the people have been evil and the Lord's intent is to purify them through the fire. An important point about this location is that Tabra, the place that they're at right now, is not the name of the place of encampment. In Numbers chapter 33, where the stops on the way from Egypt to Canaan are recorded, no such place as Tabra is named. Therefore, the location of the encampment is what is given in verse 34 of this chapter, Kibroth Hata'ava, or Graves of Craving. The name Tabra is the place within the encampment where the burning took place. It then is representative of hell itself, the place of burning in the graves of craving. The flesh which God has sent is food indeed. It is sufficient to fill us and give us life anew. And when we have partaken, we will then follow at the lead of our Lord who has given himself for me and for you. The dew of heaven has left behind a gift for us. There is bread enough for all to eat. And this only pictures the coming Messiah, Jesus. Oh my, how delicious is this bread, so very sweet. Thank you, O oh God, for filling our souls in such a way. You have granted us life through your Son. And so we will exalt you through him each and every day until when at last this earthly life is done. Then we shall praise you forevermore, O oh God, as in the heavenly Jerusalem we shall forever trod. Our second thought today is the manna. It's verses 4 through 9. Verse 4, Now the mixed multitude who are among them yielded to intense craving. Here's a word found only once in the whole Bible, right here. It's asasuf. It is a reduplication of the word asaf, which signifies either to gather together or to take away. Translating this as the mixed multitude is misleading. Mm -hmm. The mixed multitude who came out of Egypt and who are mentioned in Exodus is a completely different pair of words. It is obvious that the different word is intended not to speak of that group, but of a gathering together of miscreants. They're whoever. It can be anybody, Jew or anybody else. One could think of any modern gathering of Democrats and socialists who do nothing but incite violence and stir up rage and anger. This is the idea that's being relayed right here. Another new word is given, ava, or desire. It is an intense desire and even a craving. It can be good or it can be bad. In Isaiah 26, the prophet says the people desire after the Lord. It is as if they had an intense craving for him. Here in Numbers, it's not for the Lord, but for something else. Here, there is a group of people who crave after what they do not have, and they will incite the rest of the people to a state of agitation as well. Verse 4 going on. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? The rabble led the entire congregation referred to here as the children of Israel, to also join them in their cravings. The words wept again, though, do not make any sense. The last time that any weeping was recorded was way, way back in Leviticus chapter 10. That was at the deaths of Nadav and Avihu. The word here is shuv. It indicates to return or to turn back. What is happening here is not that they are weeping again as if it's connected to the account in verses 1 through 3. Instead, they turned back and wept. In other words, the coming words of verse 5 explain the turning back. It is in the memory of what they had back in Egypt. In their weeping, they asked for basar, or flesh, to eat. It is any type of meat, not specifically what they will ask for next. Verse 5, we remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. The people's craving is for what they once had, but which they no longer can obtain. They first say that the fish came freely. They were so abundant and so cheap that it was as if they were free. They also mentioned five types of plant which they remembered with passion. All five of these are new to Scripture, and only one, the leeks, will be seen again anywhere else in Scripture. The other four are only mentioned this once in the Bible. To understand the connection to us, the symbolism of Egypt needs to be reconsidered. That was a picture of life in sin. Israel was redeemed out of that. It pictures Christ who died for us when he redeemed us from our life of sin. They're desiring flesh to eat. And the delicacies of Egypt is a picture of us when we're tempted back into sin. If we were drug addicts, we get tempted back into drugs. If we were alcoholics, we get tempted back into that. If we were into pornography and cheating on our wife, we get tempted back into that. That is what this is picturing. 
Paul refers to this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Paul's equating Egypt to our life of sin that we were redeemed out of. And this is why this is such an offense against the Lord, what's going on. In this instance, the people had been redeemed out of sin to life under law. It led to constant failure, because by the law is the knowledge of sin. Our redemption is far greater, because we are not under law, but under grace. As we are under grace, we are not to remember and long for those things which we have left behind. But we should want to live out our lives not desiring the lusts of the flesh and those things which tempt us. Rather, we are to desire Christ and to be content in Him alone. The opposite of that, however, is seen in the next verse. Verse 6, but now our whole being is dried up. The words are hyperbole. The things they have described, flesh, fish, tasty fruits and vegetables, they'd be juicy and refreshing. They have been in the desert where there is nothing either juicy or refreshing in that regard, except the manna, as I'm going to explain in a few verses. Again, think of life before Christ and what your soul lusted after. Those things were tempting, and they satisfied for just a moment. As soon as the melon is eaten, you're hungry again. That is why the people left Egypt. They were never fully satisfied. If they were, there would have been no need to leave. But leave they did. Now they have forgotten. And we should never forget. We now have that which fills forever and which will forever satisfy. Verse 6 continues, There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Of these words, the supposed scholars at Cambridge University say this, No account has been given in this chapter of the sending of the manna And it is possible that the writer means to describe not a miraculous food from heaven, but a natural phenomena of the district. It is as if they purposefully want to destroy the narrative and pick apart scripture. First, the fact that the manna is mentioned here is exactly an account of the sending of the manna. Secondly, if they had read their Bible in full just one time, they could not help to remember these two passages, which I'll read to you now. Exodus 16, verse 35. And the children of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And then in Joshua 5, 12, in confirmation of that, it says, Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. So, it says explicitly twice in the Bible that they had manna the entire time they were in the desert, and yet the scholars at Cambridge say, it doesn't mention manna, it must be something else. It is as if they took Hebrew lessons, learned the language, and then were told to write a commentary on the Bible, not because they're Bible scholars, but because they know Hebrew. The manna was given for the entire time Israel was in their wanderings. Will one person here, one person, please call out and tell me what the manna pictured? Jesus. Absolutely. It pictured Jesus. The explanation is found in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give it is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The manna is a type of Christ to come. The picture then is that Israel fed upon that which never ceases, Christ. It is, as he said, his flesh. They wanted the flesh of Egypt, but God offered himself to them, and yet they found him bland, unfulfilling, and tedious. No wonder the reaction of the Lord later in this chapter is what it is. He has provided for them from himself, and they have rejected his gracious offering. Sounds like the world today, doesn't it? You're seeing the same parallels from thousands of years ago occurring in human history again and again. The manna which came for 40 years is only mentioned in numbers in these two verses. And so, as we continue through the rest of the book, let us remember that everything, 
everything that occurs does so while the manna continues to be provided. Every evil that Israel will face is a self-inflicted wound based on their rejection of the Lord. And every day of every account which is given to be considered one more jab in the eyeballs of the unscholarly folks at the University of Cambridge. Please understand that just because someone knows Hebrew or just because that person is Jewish, it does not make him a specialist in all things theology. That is a giant mistake that the world follows again and again and again. Oh, he was raised in Israel. He, we're going to follow him. That guy speaks Hebrew. He must know what he's talking about. These guys don't know what they're talking about, and they were trained better in ancient Hebrew than any modern people that live in Israel because the languages are a little bit different. And yet they had no idea what they were talking about. Do not trust somebody because he can speak a language, Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. Do not trust somebody because they are from a place or they have a certain lineage or heritage. You trust them because they adhere to the word of God and they preach Jesus Christ, who is the subject of the word of God. And that's it. Now to show that what the Lord provided was not an unfair allowance, but one which demonstrates the ungrateful, perverse nature of the people, a description of the manna is once again provided in this narrative. It was first described in Exodus 16, but because we are slow to learn and as quick to forget as Israel, we are given our own review of it by the Lord. Verse 7, Now the manna was like coriander seed. Vehaman Kisrab God, and the manna was like seed coriander. The word for coriander seed, God, is only used twice in the Bible, and both times it is used to describe the manna. All translations agree that it is coriander, but some scholars do not. However, it is still sufficient to describe the size of it, which is small and round. We can now wave goodbye to the word God or coriander. Verse 7, and its color like the color of bedellium. Bedellium is a whitish, transparent, wax-like resin. Along with these two descriptions, Exodus 16 gives a little more information on the manna. First, it said, In the morning the dew lay all around the camp, and when the layer of dew lifted there, on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. There, the word translated as lay was shekevah, which means an emission. It seems like a risque word to be used to describe the food of people, but nothing sexual should be inferred. It is defined by scholars as the seed of copulation. It then would imply that which gives life, and that in turn perfectly fits Jesus' words, once again from John chapter 6. Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The term of small round substance gives us clues into the manna. The word for small, dak, literally means thin. The word for round is chaspas, and it means round, but not round like a ball. Rather, it's round like a scale. And so we get the idea of a round thing, which is very thin. Also, the word for frost is kofer. It indicates to cover, as in the frost covering the ground. That word comes from kafar, which means to appease, to atone, forgive, be merciful, and so on. It is, again, a picture of Christ who covers our sins in his mercy. The daily receiving of the bread by Israel looked forward to our atonement and the sustaining of our salvation as we walk in this fallen world. As long as we are here, we can and must continue to rely on the true bread from heaven to sustain us until we enter into the land of promise, which is exactly also when Israel's manna ended. As the manna only became visible when the dew had lifted each day, it explains the enigmatic expression used by Jesus in Revelation 2, verse 17, where he promises those who overcome, meaning those who trust in him, some of the hidden manna to eat. Until the dew lifts, it remains hidden. Finally, in the same chapter of Exodus, it said, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. It was described as having the ta'am, or taste of wafers with honey. But if you think of it, if someone didn't know what wafers and honey tasted like, they would be in the dark about the taste of manna. However, honey is a food that is found pretty much everywhere throughout the entire world. This is because honeybees have been domesticated in all places where man is. Further, honey doesn't spoil, 
and so it can be transported anywhere. This probably is not coincidence. The taste of the very substance which is described as bread from heaven and which pictures Jesus Christ is pretty much universally known. And therefore, we have another revelation from God's word. The word is used to describe Jesus, and it is said to be sweeter than honey to the mouth. Jesus is the subject of the word and is described in picture through the manna as having the taste of honey. It's like a beautifully wrapped package which has been given to the people of the world. So we have this risque word, which means an emission, but actually which sustains life. And then we've got the covering, the word which indicates atonement. We've got this picture here of honey. All of these things are pointing to Christ. Every single description of the manna is pointing to Christ. And you wonder why the Lord is so angry at these people when they reject what he's given them. It's because they want to go back to what they had before, which is life of perversion, a life of drunkenness, a life of whatever you came out of. And that's the picture we're to be given. It's speaking to us, us in this dispensation, because they are being used as examples for us to learn. And so all of these images given both here and in Exodus, we can have a pretty good idea of what manna looked like. As coriander seed is small and unnoticeable, it forms a picture of Christ. Small in the eyes of the world, and yet the only source of true nourishment for the world. The color white would signify his purity without any defilement at all. Verse 8, the people went about and gathered it. A new word is used here, shut, or to go about. It signifies roaming from place to place. The gathering of the manna would have been like going out for blueberries. You'd start picking some here, you'd see a bigger pile over there, and you'd go get that. It would be a process of work, but not in the sense of labor. It would be something to anticipate and enjoy, like looking for Christ in the many passages of Scripture, which is exactly the idea that seems to be conveyed right here. The gathering itself is explained in Exodus chapter 16. Here's what it says. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need, and Moses said, Let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. Verse 8 continues, grounded on millstones or beat it in the mortar. This was never mentioned in Exodus, and it is giving us new insights into the manna. It was hard enough, meaning not sticky, so that it could be ground on a millstone, thus powderizing it so that it could be made into various things, from bread to soup stock to whatever else cooks use powderized stuff for. The odd thing is that though it melted as the sun rose and became hot, that was only if it wasn't gathered. When it was gathered in the morning, it apparently became hard like some type of grains so they could be ground. If not ground, it could be beaten in a mortar. The word is duk, and it's only found here in the whole Bible. One can get the sense of beating in a mortar by the sound of the word. Duk, 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 duk. This would make the manna so that it would be soft and malleable for rolling up into taco shells, although they probably didn't call them taco shells. They probably called them shawarma, as they do today. It could be beaten into anything else that a mortar is used for as well. Verse 8 continues, cooked it in pans. The word translated as cooked signifies to boil. The word for pans means something deeper than a flat pan. This is probably referring to how we make donuts by putting them in oil and letting them boil until they're tasty and delicious. Nummy, nummy, good, good, good. Verse 8 continues, and made cakes of it. These would be bread that would be round like a disc or heaped up into a loaf and cooked like a cake on a hearth or in a fire. Verse 8 continues, and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil. In Exodus, it is said that it tasted like wafers made with honey. Here it says it is like pastry prepared with oil. There's no contradiction in this. One is speaking of it in its raw state. The other is when it was baked into cakes. Here, though, we have another new word, lashad, translated as pastry. It's an important addition to what the manna was like when it was prepared. The word signifies juicy or with moisture. So they're complaining about not having anything with moisture, anything juicy, anything tasty, was a lie. 
okay? In a person, it would indicate his vitality. It is only used here and in Psalm 32, verse 4, where David said his vitality was turned into the drought of summer. One might wonder why all of this detail concerning different ways to prepare the manna. Have you ever wondered that when you're reading this? If the reason for complaining is considered, it becomes obvious. The manna could be eaten plain, it could be cooked, it could be baked, it could be boiled, and so on. As these are all of the ways of preparing any type of food that one would eat, it shows that it was a universal, basic staple to which anything could be added. If boiled, it could be boiled with spices. If baked, it could be baked with whatever stuffing could be dreamed up, and so on. When prepared in a certain way, it would be juicy and bring vitality. Every want and every need could be met with the manna, but the only true obstacle to overcome would be the thought of eating the same substance each day. And that is not a big thing to overcome. How do I know? Because I lived in Asia for nine years, and I married to an Asian wife, and I guarantee you that we can go through rice 365 days a year, three meals a day, and you get used to it, okay? So don't complain if you get manna every single day and that's all you're getting. You can do things with it, okay? Once one simply thought through the obvious, it would not be so burdensome. They got it for free. It was always available. It met every need. It came with a guarantee that it would outlast the trip to the promised land and so on. In other words, it was, in its truest sense, a picture of Christ. We can go roaming about in a thousand different directions, but wherever we go, he will be there. He offers us of himself freely. He is always available for us. He meets every need, and he comes with a guarantee that he will outlast our trip to the promised land. He will never fail to appear. He sustains us completely, wholly, and forever. And yet, how often do we turn our hearts back to Egypt and turn our desires to that which can never truly satisfy. The interesting thing is that no matter what is done to the manna, it always reflects Christ. If in its natural state it tasted like wafers and honey, he is the word which is sweeter than honey to our taste. In its prepared state, it was like pastry prepared with oil. He is the suffering servant who was bruised and beaten, and yet he came forth in vitality and the full measure of the Spirit. In him there is never any lack, but only increasing the light and wonder. Verse 9, And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. The wording here shows that the dew came down, and the manna then came down on the dew. It says that the dew lifted in the morning in Exodus 16, and so there's a layering of the dew, hiding it and protecting it from any defilement. As I said earlier, that looks to Christ who gives us the hidden manna of Revelation 2 verse 17. A heavy burden has been placed on me. It's greater than I can bear. Take this burden, Lord, or kill me. To the land of the dead, please send me there. I cannot stand in the gap to handle all these things. I'm overwhelmed and cannot do it, my Lord. I'm ready to snap and my head rings. Hear my petition, O oh God, hear my word. I know your grace is sufficient for me, this I know, but that is enough for only me. How can I carry the load of others? How can it be so? I'm overwhelmed with my burden. Oh God, can't you see? Our third thought today is Moses' displeasure. It's verses 10 through 15. Verse 10, Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone, at the door of his tent. The picture we are to get here is that the rabble who got the people stirred up caused the entire camp to start grumbling, maybe over their manna as it was being prepared. From there, instead of just grumbling in their homes, they start going to the doors of their tents and moaning, Hey Moses, we're sick. We're utterly sick of this manna. And then more people come out and they get into a tizzy and they start casting dust up into the air and moaning and weeping at their misery. Then to think that none of this, none of it would have been the case if people simply stopped and considered. But being a society of infants, they collectively whined so much that the noise reached to heaven itself. Verse 10 going on, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. At the rejection of his provision, the Lord saw it as a rejection of him. The two are united as one thought in the Lord's mind. One cannot reject the word of God, meaning the Holy Bible, without also rejecting the God who gave his word. It is impossible. Such is true with the manna as well. Verse 10 continues, Moses also was displeased. This is a connecting thought which stems from the people's attitude toward him and the Lord's placement of the responsibility for the people on him. 
He's venting in two different directions at once with seemingly nowhere to go to find relief. Verse 11, so Moses said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant and why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Here we have the first of several instances where the prophet of God is utterly defeated in his spirit. It will happen to Elijah after he defeats the prophets of Baal. It will happen again with Jonah after he prophesies to Nineveh and they repented his preaching. The same attitude of despair shows forth and the same final request for relief is seen in each of them. Moses has come to the point of utter frustration and he cannot find it in himself to go on. The burden is too heavy. It actually reflects Jesus, our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, who cried out, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The burden was so great that only relief is sought. Verse 12, did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a garden carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? When Moses says I here, it is emphatic. Did I conceive? Did I beget? He's been appointed over a people who are unruly, childish, and they are not even his own children. If they were, he could handle them as a parent, but he cannot. They are not his, and yet he has the burden of caring for them. Kyle notes, however, this is the language of the discontent of despair, which differs from the murmuring of unbelief. He's looking for deliverance. He's not questioning God's plans or purposes. But one cannot help but see Christ in these questions of his. Think of it. Think of what he just asked. Did I conceive? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's John chapter 1. Then he asks, did I beget? Well, what did John say in 1 John chapter 5? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. And then we have, carry them to the land which you swore to their fathers. Well, what does Paul say in Colossians chapter 1? Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, carrying us to the land of our fathers, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. Moses felt the burden and required help to do what was not his responsibility. Jesus felt the burden, but did alone what was required because it is his responsibility. The promise has been made and he will see it through to the end. This shows the weakness of the law both in its mediator and in its ability to accomplish what it was destined to do. It then highlights the infinitely greater new covenant, which accomplishes all, all that the law could never do. Verse 13, where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep all over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. That takes us back to John chapter six, where Jesus said, my flesh is food indeed, right? The meat is there. You got to ask yourself when you come to verses like these and you have the Lord putting words in the Bible that somebody is questioning or saying, always it's going to point to Jesus. When he asks a rhetorical question, did I beget this? You got to figure that the Lord had that included in his word because he wants us to think of Jesus. Anytime you see some dialogue like this, all you have to do is say, what's it pointing to? It's always pointing to Jesus. Moses is chided by some for caving into the people's desire for meat, as if he agrees that they have a valid case in that the manna is insufficient for their health, well-being, and happiness as a people. This is not the case. What Moses is concerned about is a riot in his own possible demise. How do you quell the anger and distrust of several million people who are upset about their lot? Telling them to be satisfied with their manna may be true, but it will not improve his lot one little bit. This is a rhetorical question in the same vein as those of the previous verse, and nothing more. He is asking how he wound up in the position he finds himself in, and he desperately needs relief. Because, verse 14, I am not able to bear all these people alone, because the burden is too heavy for me. In Exodus 18, Jethro had recommended that Moses divide the people into leaders of thousands, hundreds, and tens in order to take the burden off of him in his administrative and judicial duties. But that's not a consideration here. This is something that he cannot delegate and it cannot be decided upon in that type of a capacity. It is an infectious growth of discontent 
which is probably agreed to by most of those same leaders. And even if not, those leaders could do nothing about the matter. Moses is not asking that his job be terminated. Instead, he is a man who is dealing with a matter which required more than a man could handle. Only God could resolve the matter which lays before him. The burden was too great, and the means of relief was not attainable through his abilities. Verse 15, if you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. Ve'im kaka at ose li haragani na harog. And if like this you are doing to me, kill me, I pray, kill. The repetition of kill with the word na or I pray, along with the form in which the second word kill is in, shows the impassioned nature of his request. His death would be welcomed in comparison to going on a moment longer. You can almost imagine him. He's there curled up on his knees before the ark, unable to lift his eyes and simply crying out in agony. Again, the parallel to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is striking. This is what Elijah asked for. Elijah said, now, Lord, take my life for I'm no better than my father's. And it's what Jonah asked for. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. The burden of the office crushed these men, but they were each carried through it for another day of the battle they were called to. Verse 15 continues, if I have found favor in your sight. The thought here is that death would be a grace in comparison to being left alive. And so as a grace, he begs for it. Verse 15 finishes with, and do not let me see my wretchedness. The final words today indicate experiencing the matter. To see my wretchedness means to live through it. Moses had come to his end, and he wanted no more than just to be ended. It shows the truly caring nature of the man. He wanted the best for his people, and he wanted to do the best for the Lord. But in this, he could do neither. To do less than his best would be a failure, and indeed, in the eyes of the people, he would fail. Their desires could not be met by him. We leave on this sad note, and it's a good place to do so. The Jews look to Moses as their great lawgiver, and indeed he is. But if they truly looked at the law, including Moses' role in it, they would see that there is no hope in it, there is no hope in him, and only futility in pursuing either. The only place where satisfaction can come from is from the Lord. The only place where contentment can come from is from the Lord. And the only place where hope can come from is from the Lord. Trusting in Moses Trusting in the law or trusting in one's own accomplishments under the law of Moses will only lead to futility and dissatisfaction, and ultimately, it will lead to death. The joy of life and the joy found in eternal life can only be experienced through the one whom Moses petitioned to take the burden from him. That burden, in the ultimate sense, is the yoke of the law itself, and the one whom Moses petitioned is the one who also carried that burden right up to the cross of Calvary, and who at that place cast it far, far away. In its place is something better, something light and easy, and something glorious. If you've never called on Jesus Christ as Lord, if you're still trusting in the law of Moses, God is trying to give you hints all the way through the law of Moses that it is not going to happen. He did it right at the beginning of the institution of the Aaronic priesthood. If you understood the words of that particular sermon— Moses would have cried out if he grasped what was going on. This law can't save anything. What am I doing here? It was that evident in the wording that was given there. And the two sons die, right? Right afterward? The law brings death, it says in the Bible. But the Spirit gives life. At the giving of the law, 3,000 people died. At the giving of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people were saved. The patterns in the Bible are given for a reason. It's to show us the insufficiency of the law, not because there's a defect in the law, but because there's a defect in us. The defect is sin, and we cannot work our way to God through the law, which is what is intended. Only a perfect person could do that. He could live out that law perfectly, and then he could give that perfect life in exchange for the sins which are imputed to us under the law. And so he did. He came and he lived that life perfectly for you and for I, and he gave that life up for us. He died for our sins, and the law died with him. For everyone who believes, they become a child of God. But for those who do not believe, they will be judged by the same law that they are clinging to. How sad that we saw Today in the Prophecy Update, the Israel is starting 
the sacrifices once again in Israel, looking for something that they missed 2,000 years ago. And until they find that thing, they are going to suffer so greatly. It's a terrible calamity which is coming on this earth. And I got to tell you what, I do believe in the heart of hearts, not because of some thing in me, but simply because of the times we live in that we are close to the Lord's return. It has to be that way. Everything is looking exactly the way the Bible said it would be right before he came back. And you need to have your ticket ready. He'll punch it on the way up and you'll be on the train to glory. But if you don't come through the blood of Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, I need a savior. I need to be saved. It ain't going to happen. That's the only way you're going to be saved is by coming through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. That's his word, and either he is a liar or he is the truth, and he is the truth. We've seen enough of this word to know that again and again and again. It proves itself. So please come to Jesus today. Don't wait. Don't say, I'll put it off till tomorrow or I'll think about it. You don't have tomorrow. Today is the day of God's favor. Now is the time of salvation. Do it today. Our closing verse comes from Matthew 11. It's verses 28 through 30. I'm going to read you the last couple sentences that I gave you in the sermon. I'm going to read you the closing verse so you can make a mental connection here. The law, the burden in the ultimate sense is the yoke of the law itself. And the one whom Moses petitioned is the one who also carried that burden up to the cross of Calvary and who at that place cast it far away. In its place is something better, something light and easy, something glorious. Our closing verse says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Great stuff, isn't it? Next week, we got something different. Micah 5, 1 through 5. Of the coming king, the Bible does tell. Woohoo! It's entitled, The One to Be Ruler in Israel. That'll be our Christmas sermon this year. I know some of you can't make it. I was told the disappointing news by the doctor and his wife a couple minutes ago. They can't be here because of family. Ah, shucks. But we love you anyway. And uh, anybody that can make it, I would hope that you do. And if you have a friend that doesn't understand their need for Jesus, they're not going to get beaten up by the law, bring them. Bring your friend next week and they can hear a Christmas sermon. And I'm going to actually do something I don't think I've ever done before. I don't think I've ever done it before. If I have, I've done it once or twice at the most, is I'm going to invite somebody to the Christmas sermon next week because I see him every single day. He's a guy I grew up with. He sees me going through the dumpster every single day, and he's got a wife and a couple kids, and he's always swearing, I'm going to come to your church one of these days. And so you know who I'm talking about, Richard Davidson. So don't say anything, but I'm going to invite him, and we'll see if you, oh, Dad's back there. He knows him too. They've known him there his whole life. So if he comes, just be gracious to him and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But I don't usually invite people, but I figure Christmas is a good time to invite people. So do it. If you know somebody needs to hear Christmas sermon, do it. All right. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in the desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and you'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay. Short poem today entitled Moses' Heavy Burden. Isn't it disappointing? I mean, reading these things, if you don't know Christ, imagine reading these passages and not getting to the New Testament, being stuck in all of the calamity that comes upon Moses and then the very last word of the Old Testament. You better pay attention lest I come and strike the land with a curse. The end of the Old Testament on a curse. Holy mackerel. What does it end with in the book of uh, Revelation? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The Old Testament doesn't finish anything. It just leaves you hanging. Moses' heavy burden. Now when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard it, and his anger was aroused, so it did become. So the fire of the Lord burned among them, and in the outskirts of the camp consumed some. Then the people cried out to Moses, and when Moses prayed to the Lord, the fire was quenched according to his prayed word. So he called the name of the place Tabra, as we have learned, because the fire of the Lord had among them burned. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. They were in a state of defeat. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Each meal was a prize, but now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Now the manna was like coriander seed. Have you ever seen some? 
and its color like the color of bdellium. The people went about and gathered it, ground it on millstones or beat it in the mortar also, cooked it in pans and made cakes of it, and its taste was like the taste of pastry prepared with oil, as we now know. And when the dew fell on the camp in the night, the manna fell on it. What amazing sight! Then Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased, and so he had to vent. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? How did this come to be? And why have I not found favor in your sight, that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should to me say... Carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Tell me, I pray, where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. Give me relief from this, so to you I am praying. I'm not able to bear all these people alone, you see, because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now and end this mess. If I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct, our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily it apply and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone we will follow you as we sing our songs of praise hallelujah to you to us your path you have shown hallelujah we shall sing to you for all of our days hallelujah and amen heavenly father thank you for the surety we have in jesus christ he is what this manna pictures it was there with them they had it to eat they had everything they could ever want and yet they moaned and complained How much more severe is it then when we are in this world and we have you, we know in our hearts we have you, we're saved by you and we we know it's true and yet we find reason to complain. Oh, I need this and I need that and things aren't going well and oh, woe is me. It's tough to not be that way, Lord. We're human, we're fragile, we're, we're failing in our health, we're failing in our finances and we get stuck. Lord, but give us the strength to look beyond these things and to look to you and say, you are our helper. You will take care of us. And whatever it means in this life, you will take care of us in the end. You will bring us to glory where we won't have these troubles. Help us to keep our eyes on that prize. And with that, we should be satisfied. Help us in this, Lord God. And we love you and we praise you and we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen.